0: Amen, amen. If you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 18. Uh, John chapter 18, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 27 this morning. John 18, 1 through 27. And as you're opening up there, if you don't have your own copy of God's Word, that's okay. Just uh, grab your pew Bible there in front of you and open up to page 1246 in the pew Bible. 1246 in the pew bible i want to thank ronnie Cornutt, uh for leading us in worship today thank you for standing in so capably our minister of music nathan is by as, as you know and he's on a business trip this week and wasn't able to be here with us and thankfully we've got several men in our church who are able to step in and faithfully uh, lead us in worship so thank you ronnie for stepping in today and leading us in worship. And then I want to remind you one more time of our what we're calling our Family Reunion Sunday next week with Friendship Missionary Baptist Church. We'll be meeting right here in the sanctuary at 1030. We'll be worshiping together with them. Their pastor, Earl Dudley, will be preaching. And then we're all going to have our Thanksgiving meal afterward down in the fellowship hall. So I hope and pray that you all make plans to attend next week. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This morning, we're going to look at the fact that the life laid down his own life willingly. So if you have your Bibles open, why don't you go ahead and stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to you. Beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words... Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath, "'Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me?' "'So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews "'arrested Jesus and bound him. "'And first they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, "'who was high priest that year. "'It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient "'that one man should die for the people. "'And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple.' And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer, the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. And then one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Let's pray together. Lord, open our hearts and our minds to receive your word today. God, help us to be changed by the power of the gospel. God, we pray that we would see Jesus for who he is this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Just the other day I saw a video of a a panel discussion that involved a young female British professor. And she uh, was talking about her views on Christianity, her views on religion. And she said something that struck me, and I have since noticed that lots of people were offended by this sentence, and I understand why. But listen to what she said. She said, I do not believe that this strange crumpled corpse on a cross is representative of what it means to be truly human. I do not believe that this strange crumpled corpse on a cross is representative of what it means to be truly human. Human, Obviously, there's a lot that this woman has gotten wrong, but there's something that she's gotten right. The cross is a strange thing. You see, this woman's position is not that much different than the position of the disciples of Jesus Christ before the resurrection and before Jesus' death. In fact, you can see that all of the disciples throughout the Gospels, and especially here in the book of John, we've seen over and over and over again examples of the disciples not wanting Jesus to die. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? We don't want our teacher to die. We don't want our leader to die. And yet over and over and over again, the point that Jesus is making is that he must die to save us. He must lay down Jesus makes it clear in chapter 10. John chapter 10 verses 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father, Jesus has made it plain. He does not have his life taken from him. He lays down his life willingly. And here we see Peter, and I believe this other disciple who's with Jesus here in the courtyard of Annas. I believe that's John. I believe this is his eyewitness account of what's happening. And I believe they're both here at a crossroads. And we especially see Peter at a crossroads. And the crossroads at which Peter has found himself lies at this question. It's a question each of us may must ask ourselves if we are to follow Jesus. Where, to where will you follow Jesus? How far will you follow Jesus? You see, Peter is willing. Peter is willing to follow Jesus so long as he's got a sword in his hand. Peter is willing to follow follow Jesus so long as he's mounting an insurrection to launch and to begin his kingdom. But Peter as we see here has betrayed the Lord. He's left the Lord and he will not follow Jesus to the cross. And I ask each and every one of you this question today, are you different than this? Where will you follow Jesus? I want to look at this eyewitness account of the Lord's arrest. And I want to give special attention to the lessons that Peter is learning along the way because eventually, as we'll see, Peter will eventually follow Jesus to the cross. But we want to look here along the way at what it takes to get him there. So I want to show you three truths, and these are three truths that I think Peter had to learn this day and three truths John had to learn this day and three truths that each and every one of us here must learn every day. Three truths about Jesus' life that he laid down willingly. Three, three truths about Christ's arrest about, that you can apply to your life. Here's the first. Jesus veiled His glory so you could live. Jesus veiled His glory so you could live. Jesus and His disciples, 18.1, they cross the Brook Kidron and they go to a garden and they entered the garden. It seems as if this is a private garden here. We know this from the other Gospels, to be the Garden of Gethsemane. And so they enter into this garden. Apparently it's a walled garden, a private garden that someone's letting them use. And so they enter the garden, and Judas, who betrayed the Lord, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So you'll notice something interesting here, that the Lord is not going into hiding. He knows that Judas is coming to betray him, and he chooses nonetheless to go to a place he's always gone. He goes and enters into Garden. So Judas had procured a band of soldiers, verse three, and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. It's not a funny night, but it becomes almost comical to see all these guys carrying torches and weapons and all and 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 lanterns as if they're going to look for someone who's in hiding, as if they're going to look to someone who's for someone who's entrenched with a band of soldiers, and yet they encounter the Lord who goes willingly, who lays down His life willingly. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to Him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered Him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am He Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And then notice what happens here in verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, this is a fascinating passage of the Bible. But we see here several things. I believe in this, especially here in verse 6. The first five verses are kind of setting up for the rest of the scene and the story here. But especially we see some action begin. In verse 6 Jesus asks them he meets them meets the mob and says whom do you seek now notice this is a detachment of some some level of roman soldiers these are officials from the the court of israel from the sanhedrin this is judas these are not weak men necessarily these are not it's not a group of weak spirited Soft men, these are men who are ready and prepared and trained to fight. And yet, when Jesus says to them, I am He, ego I me, I am, they move backwards, they fall backwards, and they fall down to the ground. Now, some commentators argue whether or not this is just from the supernatural weight of Jesus' statement, that as He says that, they are forced to the ground by the power of the statement. Some people think they're acting like a, a southern belle who's just heard something horrific and they're just fainting backward, you know. And I just, I just don't know that that's the case. I, I just don't see a group of soldiers saying, oh, he's blasphemed, you know. I, I just don't, I don't see that being the case, especially not a group of Roman soldiers. Instead, what I, I think we see happening here, what I think we're encountering here is Jesus' divinity on display. As Jesus says, I am He, I believe there is supernatural power in that sentence as He declares that, as He says that, and they're forced to the ground in the same way that people throughout the Old Testament when they encountered God would fall on their faces, in the same way that John himself would eventually fall on his face like a dead man before the glory of the Lord as we hear in the book of Revelation. Here we see that Jesus is slightly, barely pulling back the curtain on His his veiled glory. It's a reminder to these soldiers. It's a reminder to Judas. It's a reminder to his disciples. It's a reminder to each and every one of us here that Jesus didn't have to go. In other gospel accounts we hear Jesus say, I could call down legions of angels if I wanted to right now. But Jesus doesn't. No, instead, Jesus keeps his glory veiled. He, he pulls it back slightly, I, I believe, as a reminder to each of us that he is choosing to lay down his life. But Jesus is demonstrating that he has veiled power. That at first glance, you can't see his power, but with the very word spoken, he can drive men to their knees. I think he's demonstrating his veiled divinity. Even though he's taught openly that he is God, you don't immediately know him as God. Upon seeing him, he's veiled in flesh. Is that what our great Christmas carol says? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. He knows this is coming. He knows this is happening. And so he's veiling his power, his divinity, and he's veiling his knowledge. He knows that this is coming, and yet he's not demonstrating all that he is. Why? Because he is veiled in flesh and veiled in weakness. He is choosing to veil his glory in order that he might reveal his full glory to us through his cross and resurrection. In other words, what he's saying and demonstrating here is that there is more power and that there's more divinity and that there's more knowledge in humility, even humility to the point of death, even death on the cross. There's more power, there's more divinity, there's more knowledge there than there is if I chose to flex my power and my knowledge and my divinity here in this garden. He's continually educating his disciples that his kingdom is not of this world. And he's making plain, as he will soon to Pilate, if my kingdom were of this world, would we not be fighting? Would we not be trying to demonstrate these things? No, Jesus is veiling himself at this point. He's humbling himself at this point precisely because he is able to. He has the right. He will take his life back up. He will be seated at the right hand of God, and through his death and his resurrection, he will receive then the name that is above every name, so that Paul says in Philippians, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess in heaven and earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, our temptation is to try to make sure that we strut around like peacocks all we can to show and to demonstrate our glory but the Bible teaches us and the Bible demonstrates to us that humility is a better source of glory than all the power we can muster in this moment. That leads us to our second point as well. Not only did Jesus veil His glory so that you could live, but also Jesus refused to fight so that you could live. Jesus refused to fight so that you name was malchus so jesus said to peter put your sword into its sheath shall i not drink the cup that the father has given me i love this passage of the bible i love this because almost every day i feel like peter almost every day personality wise i feel like peter everyone else is sitting there not knowing what to do and peter is sitting there waiting on his moment to start the fight he's missed what jesus has said and so that's that's me a lot you know i'm the guy who's sitting there like man i'm glad i brought this sword tonight you know like i knew everybody's been making fun of me for having this sword now for months right and now here i've got it and this is the night i needed to have it the the joke's on y'all peter pulls his sword out and he cuts off malchus's ear now I don't know how skilled Peter was with a sword or with a dagger, whatever this weapon was. You know, It probably was not a long sword like we might think of. It's probably something more like a broad sword or a short sword. I, you know, I don't know how skilled he was. I don't know how talented he was. But I know this. If somebody were to say to me, put a dummy up in my office and give me a sword and say, I want you to cut that dummy's ear off, 10 out of 10 times I would not be able to do that. That is a very precise maneuver. I get the idea that Peter was not aiming for the ear. Do you understand what I mean? I, I, I don't think that's what Peter was trying to do. I'll teach them a lesson. I'll cut all their ears off tonight. That's not what Peter was trying to do. I believe that Peter was trying to start the revolution. Right? The revolution is starting and it begins with me. That's Peter's moment, I think, here. And so Peter is trying to fight, but what... Does Jesus say, what does Jesus do? He looks at Peter and he tells Peter, you're focused on the wrong fight. In other gospel stories, Jesus heals Malchus' ear, he puts it back on, which is pretty awesome. I think he kind of saves Peter's hide when he does that. And he often will tell Peter in this moment, We hear he also told Peter in this moment, we hear from the other gospel accounts, he told Peter, those who live by the sword die by the sword. But here he says to Peter, Peter, you're focused on the wrong fight. Put your sword into its sheath, verse 11. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus asked the disciples to pray with him in Gethsemane. He asked asked them to pray all night with him because he wanted to focus them on the right fight. He wanted them to focus on the fact that he was about to have to drink the cup of the wrath of God. All throughout the Old Testament, there's imagery where the cup is, is filled with the wrath of God. It's fomenting with the wrath of God. And brothers and sisters, do we recognize that what Jesus is saying to Peter is in order for me to fight for you at the cross in order for me to deal with your greatest enemy, you think you've got a Rome problem. And you think because you've got a Rome problem that you've got an ignorant high priest's problem. And so it's worth fighting to get rid of them. But what Jesus is telling Peter is your biggest problem is not Rome. Your biggest problem is not the Sanhedrin. Your biggest problem is your own sin. And that's the fight that I'm going to fight. Jesus is not demonstrating weakness as we count weakness. Jesus is showing and demonstrating more strength than any man has ever mustered to go to the cross willingly. Mark 9 tells us, he set a face like flint toward Jerusalem where he would die. You can see throughout this past, throughout this Gospel of John, Jesus intentionally is going to places where he's putting himself in danger. He comes back to Jerusalem knowing he would be arrested. It is not because he's ignorant. It's not because he's naive. It's not because he's looking for a fight. It's because he's going to fight for your sins for your life Jesus drank the Father's cup of wrath so that you could live Jesus refused to wipe out Judas and his cohort here so that you could live Jesus refused to take the easy way out so that you could live I ask you this question today brothers and sisters are you focused on the wrong fight are you focused on the wrong fight are you worried about your rights and what you get are you mad at God because he's not giving you all that you think he should do when in reality what he's given you is the Holy Spirit so you can fight your main problem that's your sin and perhaps you're fighting your sin outside the power of the cross outside the power that Jesus has given you But Jesus drank the Father's wrath, the cup of the Father's wrath, precisely so that you could live. He died so that we might be made alive. Finally, Jesus was humiliated. Jesus was humiliated so that you could live. Jesus was humiliated so that you could live. We see in verses 15 through 18 and then again in verses 25 through 27 we see Peter's three denials. Jesus predicted this would happen. He knew that this would happen. He told Peter, "You know, once again, I'm I'm like Peter." And 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 I can just see Jesus telling Peter, "You're not as tough as you think you are, Peter." Jesus said, I Peter would say, "I'm willing to lay down my life for you, Peter." For you, Jesus. And Jesus says, the cock crows Peter you'll deny me three times Jesus knows that Peter's not as tough and not as bad and not as bold as he thinks he is he's the first one to draw his sword but at the same time he's also the first one when the going gets tough to bail out notice what happens in verses 15 through 18 I want you to soak in these details because I think they'll be important later Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple I think that's John Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door. And he brought Peter in. And the servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And Peter says, I am not. Now notice this detail. Now the servants and officers... Had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming them himself. And so here Peter is standing around this charcoal fire. Uh, I think these are signs and symbols and pictures, little, little signs of authenticity, little signs that we have an authentic eyewitness account here from John, that he was there, that he can remember the smell. Of the charcoal that Peter in his later years probably, every time he smelled a charcoal fire, probably remembered this night. Every time it got cold. You know, during the day here, when it's cold like this in November, we can kind of tolerate the cool weather, but at night we need to warm up, don't we? So I just imagine Peter remembering, remembering that cool, cold night when he needed to warm up by the fire, the night he denied the Lord. He does it again. He's still warming himself. Verse 25, Jesus is being interrogated. He's being humiliated. And so Peter yet is still warming himself, still sort of focused on his own comfort. It's kind of a parallel, I think, to the disciples in the garden when they wouldn't pray but instead went to sleep. There's a focus on their comfort as Jesus is alone. He's by himself. And Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. And so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it. And he said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Peter was reminded. He was reminded. How humiliating is it to our Lord that his closest friends and disciples left him, denied him. Let him go to the cross by himself. Isn't it a shame on the disciples when they have to look for someone to carry Jesus' cross? Shouldn't they have been there? But on top of that, Jesus is not only humiliated by the betrayal and the abandonment of his friends, but he's also humiliated by the interrogation and the humiliation of the high priest's. Now this might seem weird to some of you that it seems as if John's talking about two high priests here. Annas and then Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Annas who was once the high priest, the actual high priest, and now had become sort of the, the, the emeritus. High You see, families sort of controlled the priesthood during this this era, and so oftentimes it would be different members of the family who would officially hold the high priesthood at different times, but Anna seemed to to still be serving in some sort of a semi-official capacity, or at least helping Caiaphas carry some of the load. And so it seems then as if this first interview with the Lord happens in Annas' personal home, in a private place. Verse 19, The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching, and Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? A couple things to note here. First of all, how, you know, Jesus refuses to fight, and I would also say he refuses to fight this guy. He chooses not to. Paul gets slapped in the mouth before the high priest. Uh, he gets slapped in the mouth in the book of Acts. And you know what Paul says when he gets slapped in the mouth? Paul says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. What does Jesus say? Nothing. Now Paul apologizes for what he said when he realizes the guy's a leader. But, but still, that's our natural instinct is to respond like Paul responded. But what does Jesus say? He doesn't get mad. He doesn't get angry. He quietly responds. Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? We, we don't know exactly how Jewish legal proceedings went and worked during this time. We have some idea. We've got later writings that say that's this is how they should have been done. And so it's likely then at this point that in a Jewish trial, the actual person who is accused shouldn't be interrogated. It should be the witnesses. So there's a sense in which perhaps what Jesus is doing here is saying, you're not even handling this trial correctly, which is what incenses this guard such to lead him to slap the Lord. At any rate, here Jesus is being interrogated. He's being mistreated. He's being talked down to. He's being slapped by people who don't know God's Word, who are far from the Lord. People who He came to save. People who He came to die for are mistreating Him, slapping Him, humiliating Him. Any of y'all ever been upbraided before? Any of y'all ever been upbraided before just had somebody just grab you by the the collar or put you in a corner and just tell you what they think about it? That can be humiliating, can't it? And what's hard for us is to sit back and to say, you know what? This is not my fight to fight. It's hard for us to do that. Imagine, imagine, imagine how difficult it had to be for our Lord Jesus Christ when ignorant, ungodly people slapped Him in the mouth talked down to Him, mistreated Him. People who claimed to speak for God when He was God. People who claimed to understand the mysteries of God when He was the very mysteries of God embodied. People who claimed to know the Word of God when He was the very Logos of God in flesh. Imagine the humiliation that Jesus went through. Imagine what he endured. Imagine what he experienced. He endured humiliation and alienation so that you might live. And so not only is Jesus at this time Procuring for you and I a salvation. Not only is Jesus at this time through His perfect righteous life indicting the ungodly accusers around Him, not only is He doing those things, but He is giving His disciples, His followers, His weak-willed, His denying, His troubled followers, He is giving them a master course in what their life is going to look like. He's showing them In order to be my disciples, you must take up your cross and follow me. He's demonstrating to them. He's showing them that he lays down his life willingly. That no man takes it from them. And he's telling them that that thought that they thought And that thought that they will think is the most foolish thing they could imagine because they've thought exactly what that professor thought. I do not believe that a strange, crumpled corpse on a cross is representative of what it means to be truly human. Jesus, by enduring a veiling of His glory, by enduring refusing to fight, by enduring humiliation, is demonstrating that a corpse on a crumpled cross is precisely what it means to be human and that is not because that is not because death is what defines us it's because resurrection is what defines us he is entrusting himself into the hands of a holy and righteous father who will raise him up in glory who will raise him up to fight the lord's battles and who will raise him up in glory and honor no longer humiliated but with glory and honor and seated at the right hand of God with the name that is above all names Jesus Christ King of Kings and Lord of Lords I want to offer you an invitation this morning my hope and my prayer is that this is precisely where you will follow Jesus I pray you will follow Jesus to the skull. We've talked about this life laid down willingly, but don't think for a moment that the way is not the way of the cross. Don't think for a moment that the truth is not the truth about who Jesus is. Jesus is calling you, beckoning you, summoning you today to meet Him at His suffering, to meet you in His humility. The invitation is simple today. If you've never trusted jesus for the first time he stands with arms open wide if you'll turn from your sins in repentance turn to god in faith through jesus christ i believe he will save you and second of all you may be a believer and you may say pastor i've just not been living out this life of jesus like i should this altar is open for you and i don't care who you are what you've done where you've been i love you but not as much as jesus loves you and i'll pray with you today Finally, you may be looking for a church home. I'd love to talk to you this morning about what it means for you to be a member here at First Baptist Church. After this prayer, I want to invite you to come. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for his gospel. And God, I pray, Lord, that you would guide us this morning, that you would move in our hearts. Lord, that you would be with us and bless us as we seek to do your will and seek to follow you.